Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. David, welcome to This Week in Machine Learning and AI. Thank you for having me. Awesome. Why don't we get started by having you tell us a little bit about your background and okay. how you came into AI as a biologist? Yeah. Um, so I can start. Uh, I can start from the beginning. Um, so I I was born in Los Angeles. Um, grew up on the East Coast, uh, upstate New York for middle school and West Virginia for high school. Um, Where upstate? Uh, so I we lived in Liverpool. Um, which is, I want to say, like within like an hour of Syracuse. Okay. So it was very, um, it was upstate enough where things like Lake Effect Snow were a very, um, it was a reality. Okay. <laughs> I, I asked because I grew up in New York City and went to school upstate at RPI. Okay. okay. Oh, and awesome. Troy, New York. Yeah. I'm familiar with RPI. They have very, very good students. Yeah. Um, yeah, and so went to high school in West Virginia and, um, you know, graduated, went to college. Um, so I went to MIT and I was a double major in math and physics. At the same time, I had the luxury of being, uh, having like freshman biology taught by like Eric Lander, um, who's, you know, big shot scientist who like runs like the Broad Institute between like MIT and Harvard. You know, he was like one of the uh, big early pioneers in like the human genome research project. And he was also as a background as a mathematician. And so the way he explained biology really resonated with me and made me want to like sort of continue that thread um, further. And so after I finished at MIT, I went to the MD PhD program at UCLA and Caltech. And so the way that program works is you spend two years, first two years um, doing medical school, then you do your PhD, and then you return for your clinical training. And I did my PhD um, at Caltech in the Applied Physics Department um, with Rob Phillips. And there, it was a really great environment because there's exposure to sort of, you know, thinking about problems in biology, using like ideas from physics. Mm -hmm. um, but then there were some also some very quantitative experiments um, that we're doing as well. And so there was a lot of imaging, there was a lot of image analysis, and there was a lot of image segmentation. And so image segmentation, you know, figuring out what parts of your images correspond to like which objects you care about. We had to do a lot of that. And so that was sort of like my first exposure um, to those sorts of problems. And there's sort of this given where if you were sort of the more mathy type and you could do the physics calculations, then people just assume that you're going to be good at doing the image segmentation and that you'd figure out how to get those tools to work to solve like your problems of interest. Um, and, you know, by and large, like, you know, they're right, but it's still like a separate um, skill set that you have to, they have to learn. And yeah, and so that was probably like my first introduction to computer vision, to image segmentation, image recognition um, was during my graduate training. Finished my um, PhD in uh, 2011, finished my MD 2013, so I went back to clinical training um, from 2011 to 2013 and, you know, got, like, more exposure to problems in, um, well, clinical medicine. And then after that, uh, I went up to Stanford um, to continue training as a postdoctoral fellow, and so I was up at Stanford for about four or five years with Marcus Covert in the bioengineering department, and there... Um, 
there's when I started getting into sort of like the more machine learning slash AI space. And so your initial exposure to computer vision was more traditional tools as traditional opposed to tools, machine learning. So based. if you're doing edge finding, filtering, thresholding, watershed transforms, okay, you know, wavelets, all of that, you know, that was my first exposure. And so what you would usually end up doing is you, you know, you'd have an idea of like what these tools did and how each one worked. And then you'd basically bash some collection of these tools together to work on like your problem, like of interest. Okay. And so the experiments that we were doing at the time, um, and so I think you probably saw some of it at the talk um, that I gave yesterday is, you know, we'd have these images of cells. And so at the, um, so let me just give a backstory of the talk for like your, for your listeners. So part of the talk, I was sort of showing like what I was doing during my graduate work. Uh, we were very interested in like the life cycle of these viruses and in particular how these viruses got their DNA from inside the viral capsid into like the bacterial cell. Didn't really have an idea of how it worked. And so we had this idea to create an experiment to like, let us watch. And so the challenge was, can you figure out a way to look at one piece of DNA being transferred from like inside the virus to inside the cell? The answer is yes, you can. You have to use these uh, very particular kind of dye that will stain the DNA while it's inside the viral capsid. And then you can watch the dye molecules get transferred um, between the virus into the, into the bacterial cell. And so you get these gorgeous movies. Um, but we then have to do is quantify these movies so you can, you know, have some sense of the dynamics of this process. And to get a sense uh, uh, of the type of movie that we're looking at, like, yeah. what's the field of view in, in, in terms of how zoomed in this is this? Is, are you looking at one transfer, one organism, or is it many, many that you have to figure out? For one paper's worth of data, there's roughly about 50 or so events that you're looking at. Okay. And it's not that often so you're generally looking at maybe like a few hundreds uh fuel of view there might be you know somewhere between 20 to 100 or so cells um within that field of view and you know of those cells maybe like a couple will have like uh an infection um event um, within what time period uh within the time period of about 30 minutes so these movies okay. were taken in um roughly like one snapshot every 30 seconds to every minute and you know that's sort of like how the um, that data was collected. Okay. Granted, it's been about seven years since I collected that data set, <laughs> but from what I remember, that's that's what we that's what we did. And so you get these like you get these gorgeous movies. And so what you need to then do is, you know, identify okay which part of the movie or which pixels within each frame correspond to like the cells, which ones correspond to background, which ones correspond to the virus, which ones correspond to the viruses that we actually care about. And then once you've done that, then you can go and quantify your images, right? And so you can ask, you know, how bright were the viruses over time? How bright were the cells over time? And um, use that to generate, you know, some like quantitative curves of here's how much DNA was being transferred um, as a function of time. And then once you have like that, those curves, then you can go and do your, you know, your fancy modeling, your physics and, you know, determine, okay, well, from this set of hypotheses for how I think this process is happening, you know, which ones are actually, like, consistent with, like, the data that we've generated. Mm. So when you're trying yeah. to determine the, the brightness, which tells you how much DNA was transferred, is yes. this how much in terms of the length of the sequence that's transferred or some other That's ideally, quantity. like, what you want to – that's ideally, like, what you want is, like, okay. how many 
base pairs or how many nanometers worth of DNA has been transferred like over time. And so you kind of use a calibration curve. So you know at the beginning of the event, you know, the virus has about 48 kilobase pairs of DNA. At the end of the event, like it should have zero and use some like linear interpolation, you know, assuming that, you know, you know, linearly related, you know, brightness versus like how much DNA. And then you can like infer from the movies, um, go from brightness to um, length of um, amount of DNA. So where does machine learning and AI fit into yeah. all that? So machine learning and AI fits in. Um, in how do you do like the object, how do you do like the object recognition, the image segmentation? And, you know, that experiment was you know, it was sort of like the classical computer vision approaches um, that we used to analyze that data. And when I started my postdoctoral fellowship at Stanford, um, I had ideas for experiments that I'd like to do. Um, and basically what I wanted to do was, you know, look at genome scale knockout libraries um, with um, image them and then look at them with single cell resolution. So what's a genome scale knockout library? Genome scale knockout library is a collection of strains where in each strain you have one gene that's been removed or inactivated. And so if you're interested in, you know, say like a particular like biological process, so the ones that, um, the one that I was interested in um, at the time and that my lab is currently interested in are host virus interactions. And so you want to understand how do viruses and their hosts talk to each other and what parts of the host are important for that communication. Um, there are experiments that you can do where if you have a way to look at, um, the communication using imaging, then you can basically go one by one, remove a gene from like the host. And if that gene was important, then that's going to alter what the communication was or what like the outcome of um, the viral infection ended up being. Hmm. And, you know, that's what you the know, host in this case is the host in this not case the virus, is, though, is not the, the virus, but the cell that's infecting. Right. Yeah. Right. Okay. And you're yeah. removing the that particular sequence prior to the infection. Prior or? to the infection. Okay. And so you've got a control experiment. You've got a control where nothing's been removed, and then you have a collection of strains where, in each strain, one gene has been removed. And so there are collections that um, like this that exist for um, certain strains of E. coli. There are collections that exist um, for yeast. Um, people at the Chan Zucker Initiative are creating collections like this that um, exist for, you know, mammalian cells. And um, these are really powerful tools because, you know, because they exist in like this arrayed format where one well of a dish will have one strain that has one gene removed. Mm -hmm. Then you can systematically go one by one and ask, okay, does this removal, does that influence what I was interested in studying. So in mm -hmm. this case, does it influence um, the outcome of a particular viral infection? So what we want to do is to be able to read out a screen of this library using imaging mm -hmm. and imaging with single cell resolution. There you're going from the case of where you're doing, you know, 50 or 100 or 1,000 cells to doing millions. And there you don't have the luxury of being able to like go back and like manually correct like segmentation errors. You really need something that's going to work 99% um, of the time, if not, um, if not better. And that's where the machine learning comes in. And so I remember when I was a medical student, um, I was sort of like browsing Facebook and I realized like, Hey, you know, Facebook actually knows like where the faces are in, you know, in like all the images I'm uploading, not only that, but it has like ideas of like, 
who's in these who's in these um, pictures? Like, is it you? Is it like your, you know, like your, one of your three like best friends? And you know, just you know, I've done like a lot of microscopy in my um, over my career, and it's like I know that the images that uh, I collect on the microscope are a lot simpler than the images <laughs> of like me doing Brazilian jiu-jitsu or hanging out with my friends at like a party or whatnot. Right. You know, what are those guys doing and can I steal it um, or borrow or co-opt, but you know, rally is like, you know, blatant theft, you know, can I take those tools and then repurpose them to like work on our microscopy data? And so the answer was, you know, the answer is yes. Um, and um, the time that I started my postdoc and started to like think about these issues again was literally right as the deep learning inflection curve um, started to take off. Okay, and so it turned out, you know, yes, you can repurpose these tools, and it, you know, it ends up working like really, really, really well. And so we had a paper that we did um, in PLOS Computational Biology, um, basically showing that for the single cell image segmentation problem, the existing tools um, work as well as the state of the art um, for across a variety of different cell types. So whether you're imaging bacteria, whether you're imaging mammalian cells in cell culture, if you're looking at phase images, if you're looking at fluorescence microscopy images, that you know the tools work really well. And it's at a point that you know people in the cell biology community, you know, really need to start taking like a really close look at these tools and you know start thinking about like how can these um, how can these change the way that I do my experiments and what experiments will they let me do that would previously have been like impossible. Okay. Yeah. And so did you use off the shelf CNNs and, um, and that kind of stuff? Or so did like you have I to... started, yeah. So like I started at the beginning and so, yeah. So at the time, um, Karis, when I first started, um, Andre Carpathy put together and Fei Fei Li put together like their first CS 231N course, which uh -huh. I think is now kind of like iconic in the field. I got to sit on that for a couple of weeks um, to like sort of like get um, familiarize myself with the field enough to the point where I can go and like, you know, hack some piece of code together. Keras didn't really um, was didn't really exist at the time. Um, cafe was like a new thing. Um, TensorFlow didn't exist. And it was basically, you know, do you want to learn CUDA or were you like, okay, like learning like Fiano? <laughs> and so when I first started, um, I was programming in like naked Theano, had to figure out how to pipe data into like, you know, simple like CNN um, architectures. How do you like save models? How do you like, you know, once you like save parameters, like how do you load it? Like the really nice frameworks that exist today, like those didn't, um, those right. didn't exist at the time. And so, you know, sort of like had to like figure like all those things out, get some like hacky pieces of code that would work. But the first, like basically like the very simplest you know, CNN architectures that you could write down ended up working um, really well. And actually, like, as far as the stuff that my lab uses um, in production for the data that we analyze and the data that we analyze with um, uh, with our collaborators, um, we, you know, still use those, like, very simple um, neural network architectures. Um, I would say, like, there's, um, there's a lot of, like, really cool stuff that people have done, um, but... I found it very useful to pay attention to what's going to generalize on small data sets as opposed to, you know, what's the latest and greatest that are out there. And, you know, just from like my own personal experience, you know, some of the things that will perform like really well on ImageNet, like say like residual networks, um, they have issues with overfitting. And if you don't have like that large corpus of data where your network can learn all of the edge cases, you'll still, you'll get more like practical utility from like, you know, the simpler neural networks trained 
um, in an appropriate, in a way where you like, you're doing like the regularization, um, and the, you know, normalization and like the post-processing like correctly. And so was your, your training data, the data sets that you had traditionally created yeah. using manual segmentation or traditional computer vision? Yeah. So those were, so I would say like, this is true in academia and it's true in life is that if you want to get people excited about something, like first you have to prove that it's going to work. And uh-huh. so, <laughs> and so the first generation of training data, um, like I created like myself. And so I annotated a couple images of bacterial cells in image J and, you know, and image J is, image J is a, um, Java, a Java program that people uh, can, labeling box bounding box tool uh, or something just, like that. It's like a or? general, it's a general purpose, um, image visualization and also image analysis, um, toolkit that the NIH okay. supports. Okay. And so they have tools for annotating images. It's relatively clunky, but it worked then and it works now. Um, for some cases, like we, um, we still use it, mm-hmm. but yeah, I generated it. It worked. You threw out a few different numbers mm-hmm. when you said a couple of images. Yeah. Is this a couple of images with 50 things that need to be annotated or a couple of images with a million things that need uh, to be annotated? A couple annotated? of images with a couple with about a hundred ish things that need to be annotated. Okay. And we paid um, for the PLOS computational biology paper. And even now we paid very close attention to data augmentation. We paid a lot of attention to normalizing images before they go into like the neural network. So you can account for like variations in image acquisition. And we paid a lot of attention. We paid like a good amount of attention to post-processing what happens to like the output of the neural networks afterwards. And can you still leverage some of, some of the classical tools that you use in computer vision, like the watershed transform, um, like active contours or whatnot to sort of refine like what the neural network um, produces to produce something that you can like actually like use um, on like real data. And we found that by like paying attention, like those things, you know, you don't have to use like the latest and greatest, you know, stuff in the neural networks in the, in the deep learning space, regular, relatively simple things um, with those things like paid attention to work like really well. Mm-hmm. Um, and did you iterate to paying attention to all those things or did you just kind of start there and that's what worked and we, you kept doing it? Or um, did you, while I was iterating, people create like really, really great pieces of work all the time. And like, there's just an innately curious part of me wondering like, how well will that stuff work on the data sets that we've generated and that other people have generated mm-hmm. um, sort of like in this space. And now that I'm running my own group, uh, I have people to sort of like help explore like that space. Um, I will say that we're primarily interested in like the scientific questions that we can answer with these tools and that curiosity kind of like drives our interest in the deep learning space um we're well i find it like um interesting and mathematically elegant we're not necessarily like deep learning for like deep learning sake it's more like deep learning you know because like we have like real problems that we're trying to uh um, that we're trying to address that's the way it should be uh i think so (laughs) yeah i think so um so you mentioned uh, a few kind of tricks and techniques that you paid attention to, data yeah. augmentation. Yeah. How did you go about that or what were some of the highlights or any anything stand out in terms of, you know, doing this really made it work for us? Or was it standard kind of, you know, rotating things around and changing brightness levels and that kind of thing? I would say like the things that like the things that like we found that worked um, is just like being like trying to be as systematic um, as we could with the things that we tried. And so like we have, um, so I can like 
just go through the list of things that we tried for our PLOS computational um, biology paper. The usual like data augmentation things that we've tried, um, so image rotations, image flipping, those things like really matter. Um, I would say there were some things that we tried that eh, didn't really make so much of an impact. So image sharing, and so sharing is like another like another operation that you can um, that you can do to augment your data. We found that that didn't really like impact like performance of like the neural networks that we got. Um, I would say. Paying attention to how you're doing the training um, made an impact. And so we found that for us, the simpler, you know, simpler stochastic gradient descent with, with Nesterov momentum that ended up being um, better, roughly speaking, than, you know, RMS prop, Atom, et cetera, et cetera. But that was also conditioned on like what networks that we were using and like what features we had within those networks. And so Batch normalization um, sort of influences like which which one is going to work better. Um, whether you're using like dropout or using like batch normalization, like with dropout, we tend not to do that. Tend not to use dropout. Uh, or tend not if to we're use using batch, batch normalization, norm with... then we generally speaking don't use dropout. And I would say that I we generally speaking don't use dropout that much. Uh, I don't know how general this quote unquote finding is, but one thing that we noticed was if you look at the let me just take like a brief second to sort of like say like how we do like our neural network training. Mm-hmm. And so we sort of repose. Yeah. So what we're trying, basically like the task that we're trying to do is instant segmentation. And so for your listeners who are sort of like familiar with this space, it's the same task that networks like MaskR CNN um, solve. We started working on this before MaskR CNN came out. And you know, so there's sort of like, you know, different ways of like slicing that apple. The way that uh, we did it is... It's a framework that Dan Sirison posed in a paper um, many years ago, which is recasting the instant segmentation problem as an image classification problem and trying to classify like every pixel as either being um, an interior, being inside an object, in this case inside a single cell, being at the boundary of a single cell, or being as part of the background. And you can, looking at things in that way, then, you know, it's basically like an image classification problem. Um, we train using like sample wise um, training. And so we basically have these, we have like these maps of what every pixel like should be. We crop like a small area around like each pixel, feed that into a deep convolutional neural network to do the classification. And once it's trained, um, we basically use dilated convolutions and dilated pooling kernels to run that classification neural network on an entire image um, to generate like dense predictions. What are the, what are dilated convolutions and dilated? Um, so dilated convolutions are basically if you take your convolutional kernel, um, dilations are basically just like inserting zeros in between um, the weights of your of your convolutional kernel. And there's a similar um, there's a similar thing um, in the pooling kernel. Pooling. Yeah. So it turns out you you kind of have to do that because because you're training this neural network uh, to do pixel-wise classification. Once it's trained to do dense prediction, if you try to feed it in patch by patch, if you have two neighboring pixels, then basically all of the patches around it are essentially redundant computations. And so you need um, you need to use like the dilated um, kernels to you know get like a fully convolutional um, execution. And so does your your dilation factor end up being like a hyperparameter? No, it's like it's like mathematically like exact. If you 
dilate things in the right way, then it ends up being like mathematically the same as like running everything, like um, doing like patchwise um, patchwise prediction. Okay. So I got like sidetracked on on, <laughs> on that. So like, there's a reason. I mean, this happens to me like all the time as I'm getting as I'm getting older. Um, we were talking about the kind of various ways you've tweaked the process, and you mentioned that um, you know while there are some. Uh, newer approaches to yeah. segmentation. Yeah. You um, kind of rolled your own based on a, a paper yeah. and uh, ended up using this dilation as a way to do the pixel by pixel. Okay, yeah. So, and we we're, all, I think we we're also talking about like what parts did we find or what augmentation what was useful and what wasn't. Right? Yeah. So, like the output of this, um, the output of like this approach is you get like probability maps for what's like inside of a cell, what's a cell boundary, and what's like a background. Um, if you use drop, and so for the post-processing, it's actually helpful to have like some notion of uncertainty. And so if the neural network is like not sure, it's easier for the post-processing for let's say there's a picture where it's not pixel where it's not sure. It's more useful to have that pixel value be like 0.5 instead of you know making a very certain like false call. And so what we found uh, with some of our experiments with dropout is that it was essentially removing some of the uncertainty that was encoded in these probability maps. And that made it a little harder to do like the downstream um, processing. That's why I, t I kind of like shy away from dropout. Um, I don't know like how general this is. And, but this is like, that was like one of the um, empirical observations um, that, um, you know, I've noted during like my, um, my time experimenting with these things. Um, other things that like really help um, more like more training data. The more data that you have to capture more and more edge cases, then like the better um, the better the neural networks are going to perform. Uh, we found that roughly if you have like standardized like acquisition um, conditions, and you collect your training data on like the same acquisition conditions, then you really only need. I'd say like on the order of like a few hundred um, to a thousand cells to get like neural networks and it'd be like good enough to analyze like subsequent experiments. But the more the more training data that you get, then the better that it's going to be. And I think now we're getting to the point, I think we're getting to the point where we're having like more and more like data sets that are like publicly available. So when we published like our paper in PLOS Computational Biology, we released like all the data sets we annotated. I think it was on the order of like maybe like, you know, 10 to 15-ish images. It was quite a bit of work to do. Um, but, you know, I'm a big fan of if you're publishing something, you know, make everything that you're doing, like, openly available. Um, and I think, like, as we're seeing, there's more... People are recognizing that the challenges in this space aren't necessarily, like, the algorithms anymore. It's, like, having access to, like, good, like, high-quality data, right? right? If you give someone, you know... A good data set you know there's going to be like some nerd in some basement you know who's like lives on stack overflow is going to be able to put together like some kind of machine learning solution uh using that data set it's just are there data sets that are out there and i think now we're starting to see like more and more data sets um like in this space and so the ones that come to mind so i think there's there was one that was released by um the broad institute um, it was like part of like the 2018 um, Kaggle data science competition uh, for doing nuclear segmentation. Um, that was one of the things that we tackled in our plus computation biology paper. But more data sets on more data types and you'll get better um, better neural networks. And as we saw today, um, you know, figure eight is releasing 
uh, annotated data on H&E pathology images um, for doing nuclear segmentation on a variety of like different tissue types. And so I think like the more and more data sets that we have that cover more and more um, use cases, then like the closer we're going to get to actually having like general tools that, you know, people be able to use like off the shelf, mm. um, which I think is going to be like really, really awesome. So yeah, uh, in my view, like I view this space as the challenges. I don't want to like downplay how hard it is to like get started like in machine learning and deep learning. It's like, you know, of course there's like, there's like challenges and issues, but it's really, I'd say like data sets um, are like one big challenge and deployment um, is another challenge. Uh, once you have like a neural network um, that's trained to like do your task, how you give it to like other people so they can use it for their problems and like their data. Yeah. 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 And have you, have you started to tackle that one at all or? One thing that I talked about at my talk um, yesterday was, you know, sort of like what are, what are we working on in the uh, deep learning space? Um, one is, yeah. So one is just deployment and experiments, experiments that we do in our lab that requires, you know, a little bit more training data. Cause like the experiments that we like to do are sort of like, like large scale imaging and then also deploying um, these neural networks so you can do like segmentation in, in tissues. Right. And so there's sort of like the, you know, well-controlled, you know, cell culture type experiments. But then there's the messier world of, you know, imaging in, you know, real life tissues that, you know, pathologists, um, pathologists do. And so these require different scales of training data. And the things that you'd really like to do in these spaces are either like very complicated um, tissues or having three-dimensional data sets. So being able to do two-dimensionals in space plus time or being able to do like three-dimensional um, spatial um, three dimensions in, in space, say like you're using like a confocal microscopy um, setup or um, another like more sophisticated instrument. And so that requires a different scale of training data because instead of annotating a couple frames to be able to look at the objects, you have to be able to like annotate like entire movies. And that's what I've been working with um, people at Figure 8 with um, is how do you train people on the crowd to like do these um, sorts of tasks? Uh, I think we're just, I think at the end of the talk, I think we showed, you know, sort of like some of like the stuff that's hot off the press, I think we're just now getting people um, in the crowd able to annotate the 3D data sets. Um, Robert Monroe showed being able to, you know, do like object tracking um, in the crowd. I'm super, super excited about that because I think that's one of the, you know, one of the big um, challenges um, in live cell imaging. And, you know, to do that, what you need are, you know, nice um, annotated, um, annotated data sets. And so we've been working on annotating on issues with like crowdsourcing, like on um, data set annotation. We're also um, thinking about deployment as well. And so there are a lot of things to think about there. Um, so yeah, I would say there's a difference between what I like to call like academic software, which is, <laughs> you know, someone has like a cool idea. They put together a nice set of scripts um, in Python or MATLAB or R and for, well, for MATLAB and R, they're relatively like well-contained environments and you can give someone a, a .m file, um, or an R file and it'll kind of work on another MATLAB installation, but Python's a different beast. Everybody's got like their own version, their own implementation. And for all the different stacks, um, tons of so, different like, libraries, tons and... of different libraries. And so that's a, that's a problem, yeah. right? Is that I can't give somebody like a link to my GitHub and say like, good luck. Um, you have to, there's a lot more, um, there's a lot more work that has to be done. And so, you know, it's, 
basically, you know, doing your due diligence, looking at like the best tools that are out there for solving these problems. Mm -hmm. um, we have switched to doing like our development inside of NVIDIA Docker now. And we're looking as um, to use that for, you know, deployment. So like we have collaborators who use some of the scripts that we generate. Mm -hmm. and, and now instead of, you know, giving them like, hey, here's like the Python file, um, you know, hey, here's like a Docker container mm -hmm. um, that has like all of the packages um, installed. Okay. And, you know, there's layers of work to that has to be done like on top of that. Ideally, you know, you'd have like your Docker container um, up and running. You'd have stuff like wrapped within like a web framework. You have, you know, that back end talking to like a front end with some semblance of like a user interface. Um, and now that I have like a team of people thinking of these sorts of issues, um, you know, we're thinking of, um, we're thinking of like just implementing um, some of these things to like have it easier for people like within the lab, um, people within the labs that we collaborate with, and also like the people who, um, you know, download our stuff and use it, um, make it easier for them to use too. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, well, David, this has been really, really interesting. Thanks so much for taking the time to chat no. with us. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure. Um, thank you very much. Uh, I should like, I, I mean, I would like to thank like a few people um, if, if I'm like allowed. <laughs> go, go right ahead. Yeah. Uh, I'd like to thank the graduate students um, who have um, been work rotating with me like the last, uh, um, this quarter. So Dylan Bannon and Nadia Vilovich. I've got to thank um, people I've worked with at Stanford. And so I had the privilege of working with Nicholas Quatch, who's a very talented undergrad who did a lot of the experiments I talked about yesterday. Um, my postdoctoral advisor, uh, Marcus Covert, um, he was great. And it was his lab that um, sort of gave me like the intellectual freedom to start exploring like these um, sets of issues, um, you know, looking at like AI and the interface with uh, the biological sciences. Um, I had a great, great ongoing collaboration with uh, Michelangelo, who's a professor in the pathology department at Stanford. Um, he's done amazing, um, amazing stuff um, on digital pathology and developing like the next platform of digital pathology instruments that will let you look at literally, you know, dozens of different biological markers within tissues. And he's had an amazing postdoctoral fellow, um, Liat Karen, um, who I worked with as well. Uh, unfortunately, you didn't get to st stick around for the talk yesterday, um, but I talked about some of the work I was doing with them. Okay. And also like to thank um, Casey Wong, and Long Kai, um, I do I do work with their labs um, as well. Awesome. So yeah, awesome. And of course, the folks at Figure Eight for folks at supporting eight, your work are, and having us here eight, at the podcast. Folks at Figure Eight, um, Andy, Justin, Robert, um, yeah. everybody's been like, everybody's been amazing. Their openness has, I think, is, I would say like it's a model that people in academia should pay attention to as far as like collaborations between like academia and industry like the things that figure eights allowing my lab to do and the resources they've given us like the work that you know we're doing and we're going to do would not be possible like without them fantastic um, yeah should also thank other funders um nih Burroughs <laughs> welcome fund uh, paul allen family foundation um they funded um a large um large amount of work and also the division of biology and bioengineering at caltech for hosting my laboratory and also um, funding us as well. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, David. Thank you. All right, everyone. That's our show for today. For more information on David or any of the topics covered in this episode, head on over to twimlai.com slash talk slash 141. Thanks again to Figure 8 for their sponsorship of this episode. To follow along with the Train AI series, visit twimlai.com slash trainai2018. And last but not least, 
Go ahead and show us some love for our second anniversary and share how the podcast has been helpful to you over at twimlaicom slash 2AV, the number 2AV. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.